3: Welcome to the program. It's the Tuesday show. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. And this is the Word to Stand Up for Life, a program dedicated to taking your phone calls, answering your questions, Bible questions, church questions, questions about something going on in your life. All you have to do is provide the phone call, 210-340-9585. If you're outside the local San Antonio area, you can call toll-free at 877-630-KSLR, that's six three zero five seven five seven. You can email questions to us by emailing questions at calvarysa.com, or you can use our free Calvary Chapel of San Antonio mobile app. And as always, I remind you, if you're driving in your car, the safest way to call is use the free KSLR mobile app, just hit the call now banner at the top of the screen. You'll be connected directly to our studio producer. Hey, don't have anything to talk about on Tuesday, so we'll get right to questions. Our first question is from our email inbox from Lynette, and Lynette says, "Can you tell me which scriptures say the seal and trumpet judgments? Um, that the, the seal and trumpet are judgments." Or are you guessing? The Bible says the bold prophecies are judgments. Lynette, I know you're fascinated with the book of Revelation. Uh, I think the dozens of questions you've sent in have all been about this, but it's really a lot more simple than you're making it. In chapter 6, which we know are the first series of judgments, chapter 6 of Revelation, Verse seventeen says, after the the uh, the judgments are poured out, uh, it says, for the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? Now, of whose wrath? Well, they called to the mountains; these are the people being judged. They called to the mountains and the rocks and said, "Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne, and from the wrath of the Lamb." That makes it really, really clear. Now, that's the very first set of judgments. If you would look at each of the things that happen when the seals are opened, then uh, you'll see that people are dying. Uh, This is the great tribulation, and it's where it begins. Verses 16 and 17 in chapter 6 make that absolutely clear. It is the day of the wrath. Now, you said that the um, trumpet judgments in chapter 16, verse 1, Um, not the trumpets, but rather the, the bowl judgments are God's wrath. Well, you're right. It says in chapter 16, verse 1, that those are also the wrath of God or the wrath of the Lamb. So they're in exactly the same category. Now, when I said it's easier than you're making it, all you have to do is look at what happens when the seals and then the trumpets and then the bowls are poured out. And in increasing numbers and increasing intensity, people are dying. The world is being changed ecologically. Uh, The the, the topograph of the world is being changed. So um, they're all the judgments. The the great tribulation begins in chapter 6 with the seals and goes all the way through... um, the bold judgments, which are by far the worst, and billions and billions of people are dying as a result of their rebellion against God. So I hope that makes sense to you. It's hard for me to understand why that's even a question. Um, It would appear to me as though uh, you are um, reading maybe some pre-wrath material and they say, no, the, the wrath of God only begins with the bold judgments, uh, that's absolutely not the case, and chapter 6, the last two verses make, make that clear, as chapter 16, the first verse, makes it clear. Here's a question from Ron in Converse. He said, can you give us any insight on the Shriners organization? Um, n- not a lot. You know, I try to follow Paul's advice and be um, wise about that which is good and simple about that which is evil. Uh, the Shriners, the Masons, um, um, they're certainly not Christian organizations. Their their, their statements of, of uh, their creeds are anti-Christian. Um, and even as I say that, there are people in them who are professing Christians and um, without any evidence of the contrary, we couldn't say that they're not. The truth is, Ron, is that people don't know what they believe. And again, the Shriners' Organization, masonry uh, of, of all types, uh, is antithetical to Christianity. I mean, The reality is, for most people, they're nothing more than a service organization, and they don't ascribe any evil to them. They're not being wise, but at the same time, uh, to condemn them because they're Masons or because they're in the organizations uh, is is um, is too far-reaching. So um, that's really all of the insight. There's a lot of information about them. You know, one of the great classics is uh, The Kingdom of the Cults, um, um, uh, Walter Martin, and uh, it, it is still available, and it has all kinds of information on cultic, or cultish-type organizations. So, Ron, I hope that answers your question. Thank you for calling. It's good to hear from you again. Here is a question from Pearl. Um, What is your opinion about pastors who have come out as pro-choice? Pearl, um, again, this is one of those things where, because I don't know people, I can't be too general, Um, but, but it would be hard for me to accept that anybody though he or she might call themselves a pastor, could be pro-choice and really be saved. Uh, that's like saying, well, you know, I'm kind of ambivalent about the murdering of children. And as pastors, we got to be on God's side, and murder is against the law. Murder breaks the heart of God, um, and yet we indiscriminately murder millions and millions of babies, and, and there's just no no way that you can justify it. It is a tragedy to me that people who call themselves pastors, and these are usually men and now women who are in uh, what are called progressive Christian groups, um, who really deny most of what the Bible says, Pearl. So um, certainly none of us have any business going to a church with a pastor who's pro-choice. There's no way they could explain that. I've seen uh, on YouTube some of them try to justify their pro-choice Positions by saying, "Well, God's pro-choice; He gives us free will, um, but but we don't we can't use our free will to murder someone, and that's exactly what abortion is. So, uh, I don't think I left any room for doubt about what I think about pastors who've come out as pro-choice, Pearl. Not a good thing, and I just don't see how anybody who really knows Jesus Christ could ever come to that conclusion. Thanks, Pearl. Here is a question from Megan. When the disciples questioned Jesus' resurrection, were they in sin, the sin of unbelief? You know, Megan, I don't think we can, again, ascribe sin to them. I think, uh, for instance, um, when the women came back and told them that Jesus was alive, they, they thought it was nonsense. You know, it sounded like craziness to them. And it's just because in the natural realm, you don't expect somebody that you saw dying to be alive. And so um, it certainly wasn't sin. Uh, was it unbelief or disbelief? I think the answer to that question is yes. Uh, but, but Megan, they didn't persist in that unbelief. Um, their eyes were opened to the evidence. And the evidence, of course, became overwhelming when Jesus appeared to them. So I, I wouldn't say the disciples... Were in sin I just think if we put ourselves in their position if we watched Jesus be brutally beaten, we watched him die, we watched him be carried to a tomb and those, the, the the stone rolled to, to seal the tomb uh, none of us would expect to see Jesus uh, alive again that 's just what we saw with our own eyes we were there uh, we saw the horror of that, and the reality is that uh, they they simply um they were shocked. you remember when uh, Jesus sent them to go to the other side of the Sea of Galilee and they were halfway out and Jesus came walking on the water to them? It's thinking he was a ghost. Um, you know, th- that doesn't mean they believe in ghosts. It doesn't mean that ghosts are real. It just means that the last thing they expected to see was Jesus, a man, walking on the water in the middle of a storm. So I think it's just the, sort of the same kind of thing. It's almost like too good to be true. We also remember in the book of Acts when Peter was released from prison, uh, the disciples had gathered together to to pray for him. Uh, James had been beheaded. Peter was going to be next, and, and a, an angel from the Lord miraculously freed Peter. He knocked on the door, and the servant girl Rhoda came to answer the door, and as soon as she saw Peter, she slammed the door in his face and went back and said, I saw Peter. He's here. Well, they'd been praying for Peter, and yet they 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 didn't expect to see that response so quickly to their prayers. So uh, that's all it was. It was just we all have that moment. You're kidding me. That's impossible. And then the Lord opens our eyes. So that was exactly the same thing, Megan, with uh, the resurrection. Just not what they expected. They were thrilled, but not what they were expected. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions are toll-free, 877-630-KSLR. Here is a question from Frank. He says, "Uh, Pastor, I'm confused about the role of prophets, especially those whose prophecies deal with the end of the age. Were they considered false prophets when they lived because they didn't come true? Um, You know, Frank, it's easy to get confused about prophecy. If you go to Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel, uh, and later some of the minor prophets, uh, especially the difficult ones, Zechariah, uh, one of the two or three most difficult books to interpret in all of Scripture, um, they, they moved around. Isaiah in particular... Will, will in one verse be at the end of the age um, that we live in, the next verse be right back into the time and space where Isaiah is writing. And so he would go back and forth to, to prophecies. Prophecy, by definition, has both long term and short term fulfillments. The short term fulfillments were sort of God's way of saying to these uh, prophets that when this happens, you're going to know that the rest of the prophecy is gonna happen. The long-term fulfillments, of course, we're still waiting for some of those um, prophecies to come true. So, um, uh, you studying the, the, the prophecies um, in their context, applying those things which we know happened historically and those things that we know are yet to happen, will give us a little bit clearer view Of the prophecies. I never considered, I think it's an interesting question uh, that you raised were they considered false prophets uh, because in their lifetime some of those things didn't come true? Uh, I'm sure they were. But you'll remember that all of the prophets, time and time again, um, because the people didn't like their message, uh, they were persecuted, they were stoned, some of them were, were even put to death. Uh, And and the reality is that um, the people just didn't want to hear what they had to say. So interesting thought I just hadn't had before. I'm sure there were people that considered them false prophets. And in fact, um, sometimes there would be the prophets who would come along and say, uh, don't listen to them. This is what's going to happen. And um, uh, they were the false prophets, but the people believed them as well. That's a great question. Thank you, Frank. Here's a question from Ryan Um, in Acts chapter eight, why were the Samaritans not filled with the Holy Spirit immediately, but had to wait for Peter and John? Um, Ryan, God was making statements. Now, two of the things you gotta remember with, with Samaritans and later with Gentiles. Jews hated Samaritans, Jews hated Gentiles. They, they simply wouldn't believe that God would have anything to do with either Samaritans or Gentiles. Um, they, they simply refused to accept it, that God would reach out to them. So the Samaritans, when Philip arrived, and God was honoring his message with signs and wonders, validating the message that he was communicating and people were getting saved, God withheld the, the, the filling of the Holy Spirit now, when they believed, the Spirit would come in them. But they, they didn't have the filling of the Holy Spirit, the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And the reason is because when Peter and the others heard that God was um, moving among Samaritans, they had to go and check it out for themselves. And this was just God's way of of allowing uh, Peter and John, and in, in a couple of cases, others, Uh, to be witnesses of the fact that God is indeed pouring out his spirit upon uh, Samaritans. And then we get to chapter 10 uh, among Gentiles. So it was sort of a, you know, I'm going to have to see it to believe it. And they went and they saw it. And they came back praising God because, hey, they received the Holy Spirit just as we had. And in this particular case in Acts chapter 8, it was simply God's way of saying Um, I'm here for the whole world. Now, they should have known because Jesus told them that their mission field was Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and then to the ends of the earth. So they shouldn't have been surprised, but uh, human prejudices die slowly, Ryan, and that's exactly what was going on there. You know, in the book of Acts, you will read about people being filled with the Spirit and then refilled over and over and over. Um, We also see... Um, people who are called disciples doesn't mean they were Christians yet but they were called disciples and in this case in in Ephesus they were disciples of John the Baptist we also remember that Apollos was a disciple of John the Baptist and when the Holy Spirit when they're asked have you received the Holy Spirit no we didn't even know there was Holy Spirit and so what they basically did was tell them the rest of the story and the Spirit fell upon them so you have to read carefully the choice of words that the Holy Spirit uses in the book of Acts. And it's absolutely thrilling. And Ryan, whether you know it or not, uh, if you've been following us, uh, I am currently teaching through the book of Acts on uh, Sundays. I just finished uh, chapter 2, so I'm not too far into it yet. And I'm excited about these things because it gives us an idea of how the Holy Spirit was working in the early church. Okay, three four zero ninety five eighty five. Our phone's been quiet um, this week. We'd love your calls. Um, this is an anonymous question. Is it possible to resist temptation without the power of the Holy Spirit? Um, no, it's not. Now, maybe for a minute you can. You know, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to do it. Then we find ourselves doing it. But you see, we're powerless without the Holy Spirit. Because the, the reality in Anonymous is we don't want to resist temptation. Boy, before I was saved, when temptation came, I did my best to give in. And I gave in because that's what I really wanted to do in the flesh. That's the sin nature that we all have. But when Christ in you, the hope of glory, when God deposits not only his love, but his power in you, then you have the means to fight um, the temptations that come in. You can take those thoughts captive and make them obedient to Christ. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 verse 13 says that um, no temptation is seized you except that which is common to man and god is faithful he won't let you be tempted beyond what you can bear and he will provide a way out in other words a way to, to say no to the temptation but that requires the power of the holy spirit you know anonymous proof of of our inability to resist temptation uh just our sort of a worldly practice of of uh, making new year's resolutions You know, we try, I'm going to lose weight, I'm going to stop smoking, I'm going to live healthier, I'm going to, whatever it is. Um, Our New Year's resolutions don't usually last too long. And so what we've got to do is say, um, not by might nor by power, but by your spirit. And I always add in your name and for your glory. Thanks for the question. Let's go to line one. We've got Jim from San Antonio on the line. Jim, thanks for calling. You're on the air.
4: Pastor Ron, thanks for taking the call. Uh-huh, my pleasure. Um, also, just want to give you double honor. We, we're supposed to give double honor to those who work hard among us in preaching and teaching. So appreciate your diligence to your congregation and, and to just the community hear about just answering questions first. So I appreciate that. Thanks, Jim. Um, question from the Book of Acts. I was actually reading the Book of Acts, too. And, you know, I appreciate what y'all doing because you go right from verse by verse. You know, and those, yep. those hard passages, you gotta you got to deal with them, you know. And, <laughs> so, so my question, I'm reading from the uh, eighty four. Uh, edition of the NIV and mm-hmm. uh, the experience of Simon the sorcerer mm-hmm. in that passage in uh, uh, Acts. 18, mm-hmm. it, I think you've already preached on it before. Yep. Um, but the one word I'll come to it that, that puzzles me is the word "perhaps," and I'll give you the context when he, when Simon when Peter says that. So what it says in that passage: Simon saw the Spirit was given at the laying at the laying on the hands of the apostles. He offered them money and said, "Give me this ability also." so everyone in whom I lay my hands on may receive the Holy Spirit. And Peter answered, May your money perish with you, because you thought you could buy the gifts of God with money. You have no part or share in this ministry, because your heart is not right before God. Repent of this wickedness and pray to the Lord. Perhaps he will forgive you for having such a thought in your heart, for I see that you are full of bitterness and captive of sin. And Simon answered, Pray the Lord for me, so that nothing you have said may happen to me. So uh, it, I'm I'm sure you you know Riley had to buy this. My question was, why did Peter say perhaps? Because I thought, mm, is this guy not saved? Is he one of those that you know seems to be saved? But uh, uh, I that just kind of puzzled me a bit. I thought, mm, yeah. I thought God was you know just the unforgivable sin is that blasphemy against Holy Spirit. I thought, mm, is this just, just because he's not a believer yet that he can't receive that forgiveness?
3: Yeah, you know, I th- I think Jim that. That Peter was listening, got a, had a word of knowledge from the Holy Spirit at that moment, and and uh, you know it's, it's he's saying it's not too late, but you're approaching too late. This is a fascinating passage of Scripture because earlier, uh, before you started reading, it says that Simon believed. He saw the miracles and he believed. So what we have to deal with is what did Simon believe? Now we also know from the text that Simon uh, was a sorcerer, a magician and he held great great sway over the people um um he had convinced them that he was the power from god um they they treated him in samaria like he was god we also know historically um that that he turned out to be uh, an enemy uh, a powerful enemy of god uh in the early church in in history uh, he was one of those uh, those men that caused uh, real Christians all kinds of trouble, and he was uh, a rebel uh, from the beginning. So what did he believe? He believed that the power that Philip was demonstrating was real. He saw people get filled with the Spirit when Peter and John came. He knew that was real power, and who knows the real better than one who deals in the counterfeit? So what he believed was, yeah, that is from... Heaven, that that's from God. I know it's real, but that doesn't mean he mean he believed in Jesus Christ. Doesn't mean that he received him as his Lord and Savior. And in fact, Peter's really clear when he says, "May your money perish with you." Uh, my paraphrase of that is is always, um, Simon, may your money go to hell with you. And again, I think that's Peter getting a word of knowledge from the Holy Spirit that this was a man who was very close to that edge of committing the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. And the fact that he wanted money for it. Uh, I love the fact that Peter didn't mince words. He didn't try to to make him feel good or encourage him. He just told him, uh, repent, repent. You know, when when Simon said, "Well, well, pray for me that this couldn't happen. Peter might as well just looked at him and said, you know, you could pray for yourself, but it begins with surrendering your heart to Jesus Christ. And, of course, Simon didn't want to surrender his heart to anybody. And, again, uh, sorcery um, um, was, was his trick, and he was good at it, and he knew that with the power of the Holy Spirit making its entrance into Samaria and people getting saved, he knew that his days of fooling people were numbered. It's a wonderful passage of Scripture, Jim. And and, uh, um, most of the people said, well, he believed, so he was a Christian. No, you have no part of this ministry, Peter told him. No place at all in it. And uh, you're going to hell. You can take your money to hell with you. uh, But it's not too late, but you better act quickly, is what I think he was saying. So that's the whole idea behind the perhaps. Man, I love that question. You know, I'm so excited to be teaching the book of Acts. It's, it's a lot of it is narrative. And sometimes people think, well, well you know, it's not very interesting. Um, the, the first century church um, gives us examples of how to do church and how not to do church. It gives us an insight into people's heart that is just as relevant today, some 2,000 years after the fact, as it was back then. And and the book of Acts will will answer so many questions for us uh, as it relates to... Uh, We look at people and wonder, are they really saved? Did they lose their salvation? So the book of Acts is really, really valuable. Jim, thank you for your nice words and thank you for the question. Hey, we've got 30 minutes left in the program. We'd love your calls, 340-9585. This is the word to stand up for life. I'll be back in two minutes.
1: Welcome back to the Word to Stand On for Life. We're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. Now, here's Pastor Ron Arbaugh.
3: Welcome back to the second half of our program, 340-9585. For your live calls and questions, we got a couple people holding on the line. So let's go to Cindy on line one. Cindy, thanks for calling. You're on the air. Hi, Pastor Ron. Hi, Cindy. I I was wondering, I was
4: thinking about um, being a conqueror. Um, it says that we're all conquerors through Christ Jesus. And I wondered if you would kind of go through what we do when we're pre-conquering and we know we need to conquer something, whether, you know, like, like a really big trial that, that never ends, and then while we're a conqueror and then after we're a conqueror. This made sense at 1 a.m. the other day. I hope it makes sense now. <laughs> but anyways, if you kind of diagnose those little things, I, I, I think I'd really like that. And I'll get off the phone and listen on the radio. Okay. Bye.
3: Thank you, Cindy. I'll do that. And, Jerry, you hold on for just a minute. This, this won't take long to answer Cindy's question. Cindy, a couple of things. One, that's not what it says. Romans chapter 8 says we're more than conquerors. Now, I'd be happy with being a conqueror. But but he says we're more than conquerors. And the whole context in chapter eight is the spirit filled life. You know, in chapter seven of the Book of Romans, that's the, the life in the flesh chapter eight is life in the spirit and and one is a life of defeat oh wretched man that I am who can deliver me from this body of death and then the other is a life of absolute victory so that we're more than conquerors and literally in Greek that's we're super conquerors I like that because we live in a culture that's enamored with um, you know uh, super people and deliverers and uh, superheroes. Well, from God's perspective, when we walk in the Spirit, we're more than conquerors. And that's just a life of victory. It doesn't mean it's a life where we don't have any problems or we don't have temptations, but it's a life where we overcome those problems. We overcome those temptations. It's a life that's lived in the faith by walking in faith, uh, trusting in our God, His character, His nature, holding on to His promises. And in chapter 8 of the book of Romans, Cindy uh, there are so many glorious promises. The chapter begins with with uh, no condemnation and ends with, with uh, if God is for us, who can be against us? Nothing can separate us from the love of God. And when we're with Jesus, and Cindy, you know I say it all the time, just be with Jesus, that's the more than conquering life. It's a life of victory. Now, again, I don't want to use general terms without an explanation there's so many churches that talk about victory you're going to be rich and you're going to be healthy and you're going to be well and you're not going to have any more problems that's not real and that's not what is meant all you have to do is read second corinthians chapter 12 and the person who wrote all of these promises uh, had had more than his share of difficulties throughout his life but it's a life lived in the will of god It's a life lived for the glory of God. And the reality is, if we will believe those promises by faith, you know, there are times we think, God, why don't you love me? Well, if God is for you, who can be against me? I'm more than a conqueror. Nothing can separate me from the love of God. If I really believe those things, then my life is going to be joyful. It is going to be a victorious life. And it's going to be a life where we can meet the challenges that lie ahead. And Cindy, just my last thought on this is, is uh, I think a sign that we are maturing in our faith in Jesus Christ, in our walk with the Lord, is that we can maintain that victorious life. We're fighting from a position of victory rather than from defeat. And uh, that the promises of God are yes and amen, so we are absolutely assured that everything that God has promised us is ours to possess it's our born-again birthright and just in romans chapter 8 alone there's so many glorious promises that we almost really wouldn't need any more promises in the rest of the bible and of course there are many more great promises as well cindy good question made sense now it made sense at one o'clock in the morning let's go to jerry online too jerry thanks for your patience you're on the air hi
2: pastor ron um like jim uh and many others, I'm sure we we really appreciate you. And uh, like Smokey Robinson and the Miracles uh, sang, <laughs> um, I second that emotion. So uh,
3: you know, know, you that made my day. A Motown reference. Yep.
2: Oh yeah, oh yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, I've spent <laughs> over 20 years on the radio, but that's for another day. Yeah. Uh, do we get college credit for listening to you because this program is just so educational?
3: <laughs> I, yeah, uh, <laughs> I, probably so, not very good credit, but credit, yeah, something I guess. It's,
2: it's an awesome show. So, Terry, you know Terry McDonald and uh, yeah. the guy that, that started the long chain of how I wound up at Calvary. But we were talking in the hallway waiting for the Christmas dinner, which was amazing and awesome, and thank you for that. Oh, On thanks. Sunday um, evening, Terry, uh, Pablo, and myself were in the hallway, and the question came up. And I've been wanting to ask this for a while. So Genesis 6-3, which says we get 120 years, and I have an acquaintance who always says, oh, yeah, I'm going to live to be 120. So you have that, Genesis 6-3, and then you have Psalm 90, uh, uh, verse 10, which, you know, 70 years are given to us. Some even live to 80. I'm referencing the New Living Translation. So, the Genesis six three. My understanding is from the commentaries. On, I have the, the uh, New Living Translation Life Application Study Bible. It says that God was being patient with us, giving people time to repent from their sins. And then I had heard also on uh, the Psalm ninety verse ten that that was actually the Israelites in the wilderness, and due to disobedience, that was a limit. That was kind of a curse. Put on them um because then it, it said no other age limit in the bible every time long life was mentioned it's 120 years so basically your wisdom and your knowledge can you put some uh clarification on that and and i'm gonna hang up and i'm gonna take notes and i've got other questions but i'll call back soon with those so okay. thank you so much
3: thank you, Love you Jerry. And
2: appreciate you and i'm gonna listen now
3: Thank you, Jerry. God bless you. And again, the Smokey Robinson reference made my day. Appreciate it. Hey, a couple of things. Now, in the Psalms, um, the Psalms are poetic. So we're not to take that literal. He's speaking generally, and he's just describing the general lifespan of humans, 70 and perhaps 80 years. Uh, That's just a general. There's no doctrine to be made there. Or or anything. So it's just uh, as a poet would would describe uh, the years of our life, we might say, um, you know, I'm going to live 70 or 75 years. Uh, It's just just a description of uh, life is short. And we need to be focused or pay attention to make sure that our life is right with God. The Genesis passage is completely different because it's a, it's a very specific number. And it has nothing at all to do with our life span individually. Because what he's saying there, remember, this is God saying to Noah, uh, judgment is coming, the flood is going to come. And he tells Noah to, to to begin gathering the materials for and building an ark. And he says... Uh, my spirit will not contend with man um, uh, any longer. His days are numbered. They will be 120 years. That meant, Jerry, that there's going to be 120 years from that moment before the flood came. So basically what God is saying to Noah is you've got 120 years. I know it's going to take you 120 years to build this ark. And I love that because even in his patience, we know from from Peter's epistles that Noah was a preacher of righteousness. So Noah would build. The picture I have in my mind, Jerry, is, is Noah having a hammer in one hand and a Bible in the other hand, and he's busy working, but he's also busy preaching, declaring that judgment is coming. Repent of your sins. Get right with God. And as he would build the ark, they could see the progress he was making, and with the progress they would see every month or every year Uh, they would realize that the time is short. It's sort of like us saying Jesus is coming. The rapture is going to come at any moment. Well, we can look around at the world and see that we're getting closer and closer to that time. Uh, Well, they would be able to look at this big boat that Noah was building. And uh, I'm certain that Noah, in his preaching the message of righteousness, declared to him that God is patient. You've got time. Judgment can be averted, but... 120 years, there's a time limit. And once at 120 years, remember that at the end of that 120 years, God sealed Noah and his family in the ark. And for seven days, they were in there before any rain started. And um, it was too late. Nobody else could get in from that point forward. So that's what that means. Not that men will live for 120 years, but that from the time he said Noah, judgment is coming, build this ark, it was 120 years until the flood came. So that was what that was meant, what was meant there. Boy, good question, Jerry. Thank you very, very much. 3409585 for your live calls and questions. Here's a question from Johnny. Uh in the Old Testament, why does God use Excuse me, I had to clear my throat. Why does God use really sinful nations to execute judgment? on his people, Israel. Johnny, that's exactly the same question that um, that many, many of the prophets, Habakkuk and Hosea and, uh, and Amos and some of the others would use when, when, when they found out that God was going to use Babylon. How could you use Babylon? They're worse than we are kind of thing. Um, but remember, God uses all his tools. Satan now is a tool of God and and Satan is, is being used by God to bring judgment on this world. Um, and um, God is simply saying, judgment begins at the house of God. And um, once he explained it to the prophets, they got it. It's one of the reasons that Noah didn't want to go to Nineveh. He knew they'd repent. Um, but the, the reality is that uh, God is simply saying, look, I'll, I'll use who I want to use and this is just me. It may look like the Babylonians or the Assyrians or somebody else is, is, is dominating you. But these are nations that are serving at my behest. So that's all it is, Johnny. He uses those really sinful nations. Um, you know, God sent prophet after prophet after prophet. He warned them over and over again. They refused to listen. And because they refused to listen, judgment came. And I say to our church here all the time that we don't have to be caught off guard, and yet Israel was, because they just didn't want to hear the truth. Thank you, Johnny. Here's a question from Leticia. She says, the Bible says that sins are forgiven, but Jesus adds that our sins won't be forgiven unless we forgive others. Can you explain that? Yeah, it's not a discrepancy. Now remember, um, when Jesus is is preaching. His messages are, are very Jewish. This is before salvation in, in the context that we understand it. Um, even his disciples, though they were saved because they believed him, because they trusted him, uh, they didn't have a, a Christian concept of salvation. Certainly never any thought that Christ would be in us, uh, the, the, the Holy Spirit, not until the very end of Jesus's ministry on the earth. So um, our sins are forgiven. When we're truly born again, Leticia, our sins past, present, future are forgiven. But then he talks about fellowship with God. And you and I, though our sins are forgiven, uh, my prayers can't be heard if I'm harboring unforgiveness. Jesus told a parable um, uh, about uh, two men, one who was forgiven this enormous amount of money and another one, uh, who owed just a little bit of money by comparison as soon as that guy was was his sin or his debt was cancelled, he went and demanded payment from the people that owed him and uh, the idea there is that if we've been forgiven so much, how is it even possible that we're unwilling to forgive others now This is a big, big, big deal, Leticia, because a lot of us we wonder why our prayers aren't being heard, we wonder why God is silent. Um, if we're holding on to unforgiveness toward other people, well, that's the answer to the why questions. And Jesus doesn't want to, to, to refuse to answer our prayers, but our fellowship with him is broken. So this isn't a salvation issue. Uh, I'm going to heaven, and if there's somebody that I am holding unforgiveness to, all that does is damage my walk with Jesus. It damages my relationship. And the reality, unfortunately, is that um, sometimes God asks us to do some hard things. I don't have anybody waiting on the line, Leticia. One of the most difficult things that I've had to do in my life, if not the most difficult thing. Um, uh, There was a man who stole from me uh, before I was saved. Um, A man that uh, his whole life was going under financially, and and he hired me as his partner, and... um, um, We we turned the business around, reestablished a relationship with banks and with the manufacturer. Uh, I saved him. I mean, I saved him. And um, as soon as he was on solid ground again, he cheated me. And I hated him so much. I used to dream about ways to kill him. And um, after I got saved, the Lord spoke so clearly in my heart. If you want to move forward, and by this time I knew I was called to be a pastor. But he said, if you want to move forward, you got to go ask him to forgive you. And I said, Me, forgive him. He's the one who cheated. And Lord again spoke clearly in my heart, Leticia. And he said, "But, But you wanted him dead. And I had to go ask for forgiveness. I said, oh, Lord, he'll take it the wrong way. He's arrogant, and yeah, he took it the wrong way and all that. But you see, I was the one that God was dealing with. And I finally did it. I really wrestled with the Lord for a couple of weeks over this one because, I mean, when I say I hated this guy, I used to have fantasies. that He was a, a pilot, had a small plane, a Merlin prop jet, and we'd fly all over in his plane. And every time there'd be a plane crash, I'd, 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 maybe it's him type of thing. And yet when I finally sat down in front of him and asked him to forgive me, and he responded so arrogantly, but I just sat there and smiled, and I got up and left, and it was like a billion pounds were lifted off my shoulders. And Leticia, from that point forward, I've never had a problem forgiving anybody, and I can, in front of this whole audience and in front of God, I can say that in spite of what people have done to me, There isn't a single person in this world that I hold unforgiveness to. And that's a wonderful way to live. So that's what he's talking about. For you and me, Leticia, as Christians, he's talking about relationship. No silent treatment because there's something between us. Relationship is free because the sin of unforgiveness is holding on. I a lady in our church come up to me one time, and she's been really hurt by people. I mean, she really, really has been wounded by people. And after I preached a message on this in the Gospel of Mark, she came up and she says, You're asking too much. I just can't do that. And my first thought is, Well, how's that working out for you? I said, Just listen to what the Spirit of God is saying. And now she's doing so much better, so I hope that she's gotten right with God. So, Leticia, thank you for the opportunity to do that. Artie says, when given spiritual gifts, do they always stay the same or change as we grow in the Lord? Um, Artie, I think uh, they, they, nothing ever stays the same. Now, once you get a gift, it's yours. Um, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 7 says, that to, to each of us, gifts of the Spirit or manifestation of the Spirit has been given. So, we all have at least one gift. But as we are obedient in the use of that gift, and when I say obedient, not only in deed, but in motive, um, then we grow and God gives us other gifts. Why would God give you a a second gift if you're not faithfully administering the first gift that he's given you? Um, So as we grow, so too does our access to the gifts of the Spirit. And I think not only do they change uh, in that sense, we grow from faith to faith. Uh, meaning from one level of faith to the next level of faith as we grow, and the opportunities to use those gifts change, as well. So they don't always stay the same. Again, God's gifts are irrevocable. Hebrews says, um, but um, but 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 he adds to them. And what I always tell people, especially when we're doing an afterglow or something here at Calvary Chapel, I always tell people that that uh, ask God for gifts and then walk in them use them by faith, and give God a chance to to multiply those gifts. And I believe with all of my heart that that all we have to do is be faithful, and all of us are going to find that we have more than one gift. So that's a good question. I hope that answer makes sense to you already. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Here is a question from Greg. Um, ooh, this is a tough one. He says, Pastor, on as Christians, how do we deal with our children when they come out as gay or trans? It's hard. Greg, it is so much more than hard. It is heartbreaking. Uh, we have some parents in our church who are dealing with these very issues. Um, and it's heartbreaking. Um, social media has hypnotized. Our children, bewitch them. Um, unfortunately, parents are responsible in large part because they don't do anything to monitor them. Uh, and our kids are being convinced um, by the world that hates God that these things are real and that's our only options. And And um, I, I just think, Greg, we got to decide to stand with Jesus Christ. You know, there's always this sentimental Christian who says, but this is my only son or this is my only daughter, and I don't want to cut him off. But you see, if you don't stand for Jesus, then why would he stand for you? If you're not willing to tell your children, I'm sorry, if you're not willing to tell your children that what they're doing is sin, then why would God answer your prayers? And this is one of those things we're always tested when we find these things happening in our own families. You know, your son or your daughter is always going to be your son or your daughter. But they've got to know that this is a Christian home and we love Jesus and we're not going to have behavior that dishonors him in our home. It's just not going to, just not going to work. when When kids start making adult decisions then we've got to be content to let them deal with adult consequences. And there's nothing that we can do. As a Christian now, I'm speaking strictly from a biblical perspective. As a Christian, there is nothing that we can do that would give them any sense of affirmation about their decisions. My child came to me and said I was gay, or my child would come to me and say, well, I think I'm a a girl instead of a boy, or I think I'm a boy instead of a girl. it just no, that that behavior is not going to fly here. We've got to be willing to take that stand, and it's and it's more than difficult. As I said, Greg, we've got some people in our church who are living through it, and uh, it is I, I can't imagine it was anything more difficult than that. And and in our case, the the people that I'm talking about, the parents have handled it wonderfully, but they live their lives with this broken heart. And they're praying for their kids, and I'm praying for their kids. I pray for them every day. And the reason I pray for them, I just, I just, oh, Lord, I want them to be like the prodigal when he came to his own mind. I want these kids no longer to be trapped by the world that we live in. Social media is so evil. I'm running out of time here today, Greg, so I'm not going to go to another question. But, but we need to understand that social media is just pure evil. And we're exposing our children to brainwashing. And the fact that they're being brainwashed, um, I mean, they, they really think it's its the thing. I had a question yesterday about people transitioning uh, from male to female or female to male. And now we're starting to get some of the blowback. We're starting to get people whose lives have been devastated by these transitions, especially those who have gone all the way and had surgeries. Uh, their lives are devastated. And, and we need to expose our kids to that and in fact what happens instead is that they are being convinced that this is a statement that they have to make and this is God wants them to be happy and nothing else matters and a lot of these kids um, they'll parrot the line well well, I'm close to God I'm still a Christian but, but the reality is people who live lifestyles like that will not inherit the kingdom of God and let me say this Greg as a parent And I don't know if you're calling for you or for somebody else, but as a parent, the most important thing, the most important thing is that your children go to heaven. Not that they are your friend, not that they think that you're cool or understanding. The most important thing is that they go to heaven. And I just don't think a lot of us believe that. It's more important what other people think of us or keeping the doors open to our kids. The only thing that matters is that they go to heaven. So, Greg, I'm sorry for you, and we'll be praying. Hey, thanks for tuning in today. You've been listening to The Word to Santa for Life. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. Lord willing, I'll be back tomorrow at 4 o'clock on AM 630, The Word. We'll see you then. AM 630, The Word. We hope you've enjoyed The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron. You can find out more about Pastor Ron and all of the folks over at Calvary Chapel by logging on to calvarysa.com. Once again, calvarysa.com.